isn't it a blessing to be able to assemble and to come together as we are today? I think it fair to perhaps say that we all know that maybe a month or so ago, a little bit more, that some of our numbers, of course, were quite a bit less due to the health struggles that many of us and our families were facing. And so it certainly is a very encouraging and exciting thing when the numbers are beginning in healthfulness and in well-being of spirit and heart are able to bring us back together. No, the Bible lifts high the value of the assemblies. Not only does it magnify and adore the name of God, but it really makes a great difference in the way in which you and I can look upon things and appreciate that we serve a power far higher than we. I would also add along that line that uh, my family would certainly like to express a word of appreciation to you for the prayers that, that you uttered on behalf of Christy and Dansby and the family And we're certainly thankful to be a part of a family who believes that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The title I've given to the lesson today at first observation may mean almost nothing. WWSD, that's not a word. It doesn't spell anything. There are no vowels within it, if you please. But yet I do think that before we're finished, we'll not only see the idea behind my choice of that title, but also I hope we can learn a number of lessons and some meaningful things in relation to it. In fact, I would suppose that the first part of this next slide will probably give away most of it. You probably remember a few years ago when it was a rather common and rather frequent occurrent thing when WWJD What would Jesus do? And there were bracelets that you could purchase and necklaces and t-shirts and it wasn't at all unusual to see someone wearing something with those letters as a reminder of in any given situation, the thing to approach would be to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? And thus to serve as a pattern for what you and I might do. But today we aren't going to look at specifically that idea because it's not merely what would Jesus do, but let me challenge you as long as, and and together with myself, to think of it this way. One of the most effective approaches to taking any circumstance is if you face an enemy and if you face someone whose perspective is different than yours, ask, what would they do? In military Warfare, of course, that's critical. You anticipate what the enemy is likely to do, and then you prepare for it. And often, if your preparation is satisfactory, you will not only win that, but may well turn the complete tide of the whole war in your favor. The Old Testament has some examples of warfare wherein anticipation was done because God told His people what the enemy was going to do. May I suggest He's done the same thing for us? There is a critical enemy that you and I face. And so today, may we ask this question, what would Satan do? If you and I can use the Word of God, knowing that it does tell us what his goal is, what his thrust is, what his impetus is, and so if we know what his goal is, how is he likely to accomplish it? How is he likely to pursue it? Perhaps that can be a powerful matter to help us safeguard our faithfulness as well as the faithfulness of this congregation. Let's turn the slide then and first form a basis of why we ought to think of it like this. We understand full well that we face a very powerful foe. The Bible makes no mistake and doesn't lead us in any ambiguity. We know that the devil exists. 
It's true that there are those who out the ages have called into question, this is just a figment of people's imagination. Due to their own lackings and their own failures, they make up this force. But there really is no such thing, some people say. But you and I know better than that. The Son of God Himself on many occasions referred to the devil by name. He's not just a force, an influence, a figment of, a, of the imagination. He's real. And He's also very powerful. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about Him we'd like to know, but it would appear from Jude verses 4 through 6 that He started out as one who, in fact, was aware of the grandeur and the greatness of servanthood to God, and yet He chose to rebel. He chose to go His own, his own way. He chose to elevate His own desire for position above what God's command was. And as such, He, of course, forfeited his place of salvation in heaven. But you'll notice on that slide, we quickly observe that He is the enemy of God. In other words, it is His desire to tear down, to destroy, to ruin anything that God prizes, anything that God holds so special and dear. And may I be quick to say, the finest of God's creation, human beings in the church of the Lord. If He can cause problems in the church if He can cause difficulties, challenges, if He can wreak havoc in the church, He's accomplished what He wants because He has ripped asunder the marvelous harmony and unity that the Lord desired to be characteristic of His body. No wonder in that light, the devil is portrayed as the chief enemy of mankind, and certainly that would especially include Christians. 1 Peter 5.8 still tells us, Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He pounces about, he walks about, as a roaring lion, Peter, Peter described. Maybe it is in that light. You'll notice then that if it's true that his desire is to attack the greatest of God's creation, let's face it, human beings are the greatest of his creation. We're the only ones that have souls. Animals don't have souls. And if He can cause you and me to be lost, if He can encourage us to be lost, if He can play a part in helping us be unfaithful, He's accomplished what He wants. So what would Satan do? You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, and it's the lesson text that Eddie read earlier. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, that word devices carries the thought of a method, a plan. The devil is not haphazard in his attack. He has a scheme in mind, and he may take a while to bring it to fruition in reality, but it's a plan, it's a device. I wonder what some of his devices are. Now, certainly, I'll not say that this list is exhaustive, but let's look at a few of them, and let's use them to encourage us. Number one, would this be a device? Without question. One of the things that the devil can certainly do, and if he is successful at attempting to bring this about, namely to undermine in a given congregation the authority of the eldership, to settle in people's hearts and minds to, in fact, really not have a lot of interest in many cases in what the elders say, then he will have gone a long way toward bringing chaos rebellion in that congregation. 
let's develop that point like this. We know full well that in the infinite wisdom of the God of heaven, it was His plan that individual congregations of His people would be such that they would be overseen by men called elders, at least two of them in each local congregation. And these elders are charged with the following things. Acts 20, 28, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Let's pause right there. They are given the explicit responsibility of watching over that congregation. In the words of Peter, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4, they take the oversight, they rule it. And isn't it true in Hebrews 13, 17 that the congregation is commanded to obey them? Might you and I reflect on the strength of that word? We know what obey means. It means to do what you're told. It means to respond in appreciation of respectfulness to that particular authority figure that you're supposed to obey. Well, that being said, isn't it true that there's a major problem then in a congregation, and no doubt a lot of souls will be in jeopardous situations, if in that congregation Satan brings a general feeling that they just don't respect the elders, they don't pay a lot of heed to what they say, they don't honor the position that, that they in fact uh, hold. You may notice some of the other comments I've invited you to appreciate. God's very specific about this, isn't He? In 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7, He has in fact set forth explicit qualifications that men are to occupy if they're to hold the office of an elder. And you may notice one of them is this. They must, of course, watch over their family because he asked this, if a man can't take care of his family and lead them, how can he take care of the house of God? So these men are tested, they're tried, they have exhibited in their life wisdom to the point where we thus should be happy to give our appreciation in respect to following them. Again, if Satan is able to bring about general appreciation of disrespect for or to undermine the authority of those elders, he has gone a long way toward harming in a dramatic way the well-being of that congregation. We all know in life, don't we, what happens when there's a fracture in an organization. To some extent, we know it in our own country, don't we? When people are not unified, when there is a tremendous divide between them, and after all, that could easily happen in a church, couldn't it? One last thing on that slide would be the reminder given to each of us in 1 Timothy 5.17 that we are in fact to honor and respect elders for the work that they do. In fact, double honor is due them. What would Satan do? So we've certainly learned one thing, no doubt he would attempt, and I'm sure all of us know of congregations here or there in various places that have experienced fracture. Didn't Jesus say it like this? A house divided against itself shall not stand. Now, that statement found in Matthew chapter 12 reminds us that even for the consideration of a congregation, how interesting it is to contemplate the tactics the devil might use. What about a second one? What else might he try? Well, we understand easily again using what the New Testament reminds us. Suppose the devil in a given congregation is able to implant a significant element of selfishness 
in the individuals that comprise that congregation. So congregations concerned about self, not so much about others, not so much about the overall well-being of the church, but I'll attend services, but my heart really is somewhere else. To develop that point, I simply would call to your attention a few verses, and I've listed some of them explicitly, and we'll get to them in just a moment. Isn't it fair to say that a congregation that's given overwhelmingly to this is not likely to accomplish much for the cause of Christ? Because after all, we're really not behaving much differently than the world does. The world often pursues selfishness, so if we do the same, we are not a light that will stand out to them in any dramatic way. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, the Master Himself, the night before He was crucified, said this, By this shall all men know that you're My disciples, if you have love one for another. A sense of unity, and Brother Dennis led us in prayer a moment ago, thankful for the spirit of harmony and cooperation that exists. And may it ever be so. But isn't it true that one of the things that Satan could use to, in a very short amount of time, render a congregation almost powerless would be to encourage selfishness among the members? No wonder with that statement. Look at some of these verses. Philippians 2, verse number 3. As Paul addressed the Philippian congregation, he pointed out to them, and of course it was a church for which many positive things could be said, and Paul com commended them notably. But in this verse, he issued a, a bit of a strong warning. He said, Don't look upon yourself in the attitude of exalting yourself, but look rather on the things of others. You esteem others better than yourself. Now, you can't do that and be selfish all at the same time. You see, there, there is an attribute, a willingness to pattern ourselves as the Lord did. Did Jesus esteem Himself better than everybody? Paul's point was, he went to the cross. He emptied himself. He humbled himself to the point of being obedient into, even unto death. The encouragement for us, again, to not only appreciate, but to implement that matter in selfishness and never let the devil get a foothold in us or in the lives of others whom at least we can impact. In Romans chapter 12, Paul had much to say about this. I've in fact asked you to consider three verses, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 16. Note with me verse number 9. Let love be without dissimulation. That word dissimulation, I realize, is probably not a common word for us, but it just means hypocrisy. Don't let love be a pretended thing. Don't let it be a matter that is only an act but rather may it be genuine, may it be real, and may it guide the nature of your behavior and your actions. Verse number 10 goes on to say, Be kindly affectioned one to another, in honor preferring one another. Do you prefer your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I? Is it true that we, in fact, would just as much enjoy camaraderie with those of the world as we do our brothers and sisters in Christ? If so, I've got a problem. And if that describes you, you have a problem. The New Testament says we in brotherly love should have a great closeness and appreciation for, and as we journey through this life, a high estimation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 16 goes on to say it like this, 
be of the same mind one toward another. And then this little statement is added. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. So in other words, whether someone is richer or poorer, whether they have a station in life significantly different than us, if they are our brother or sister in Christ, we value them, they value us. May we never allow Satan to be successful in bringing about selfishness because, again, how much harm it will do. What else might Satan do? Number three, given the teaching of the New Testament, this one again certainly is one I'm sure we each would have uttered if we had thought about the kind of question. What would Satan try? He will encourage immorality. He'll encourage ungodliness. He'll encourage a lifestyle that is not consistent with the New Testament. Let's develop the point perhaps like this. We all understand that as human beings, we're going to make mistakes and we're going to sin. In Romans 3.23, we read, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's not just for people who haven't become Christians. It's even for Christians because note this verse in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now that was written again to Christians you and I know that we make our mistakes and we do things we ought not. We fail to do things we should. But now comes the point as Christians, we recognize those things and we are delighted to repent of them and beg God's forgiveness and try to do better. But you know, one of the things Satan might try, and it certainly seems that this would be a good way for him to attack based on verses we'll see in a moment to take someone who is a Christian and bring about an attitude and a movement toward immorality. And so the person realizes it, but doesn't have any interest in changing. But yet they still want to have some association to thinking that they're okay. In other words, Satan, to bring about a sense of immorality, that I'm going to live this way, and I'm going to pursue this way, but I'll have some connection to God, albeit weakly, but you know, the New Testament has a great deal to say about that. Think about what impact that has on not only the church, but on others. After all, the church is the citadel. It is the absolute bulwark of truth in this community and in the lives of everybody that know those are its members. That means if we condone and compromise with respect to immorality and we tolerate it, then that makes an immediate standing and declaration like this. First, it says to the other members of that congregation, truth's not that important. Live however you want to. Didn't Paul say that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? It won't be long. If that kind of immorality and that kind of living goes unchecked, that others will begin to think, well... I may not be guilty of that. In fact, I haven't done anything nearly that bad, but there were no consequences to that. So what's the harm if I do this? We all know that human beings, we just behave that way. That's the way we are. We compare circumstances and we choose courses of action based on what we've exhibited and seen in prior behaviors. But I would say it's not, it's not only that. Not only is the church harmed in that kind of way. Think about the community. 
We all know that though we're members of the church, there are others in various circumstances in life who know us well, co-workers, friends, neighbors, associates. If they know that immorality is ongoing, do you really think the church will have any attractiveness at all to them? Do you recall what was said in 1 Corinthians 5, 1? There was a church in Corinth. So here was the church. They were our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet what was said to them? There was in their midst someone living in immorality. And Paul said, even the Gentiles know that's wrong. Even they know that's not right. And you tolerate it. Do you really believe the church in Corinth and that state was going to have much positive influence in Corinth when that was going on? If Satan, you see can bring immorality and a sense and behavior related to it, he's gone a long way towards, you see, bringing that church to a rather powerless state. What would Satan do? So far, we've looked at three. Let's try a fourth one. What else might he try? If the pendulum swings the other direction... Isn't it also true that, again, according to the New Testament, we will rather quickly find the following. What if he's able to encourage an overwhelming sense of apathy, sheer indifference? People just don't care. Do you really believe, then, that that congregation will be on fire for the Lord? Will they be the kind of influence both among themselves and in their community? Look at some of these verses with me. Isn't it true that you and I, as Christians, are people on a mission. We don't serve ourselves. We serve the risen Lord. He is our King, and He is our leader. We would do anything and everything for Him. We're servants by volunteer nature in His army. He gives us the commandments because He's the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. And yet, in light of that, what about if I disregard His marching orders? And I love something else more than Him. We all understand the great element that this might well be, worldliness. I love this world much more than I love God, much more than I love the truth, much more than I love the church. I attend the services, but it's out of a habit. I go just because Dad and Mom did, and I just have this interior conscience that makes me think it's okay, but my heart's really not much in it. I'm kind of happy when it's over so I can go my way. Well, if that's the way I feel, that kind of apathy is not going to lead me to heaven. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 6.33. He highlighted in such great strength the nature of, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Now, we aren't left thus to our own devices in trying to figure that out. The Lord told us what it means. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. Mark 12, verse 30. And therefore, when you and I ask of ourselves, am I allowing Satan the opportunity to cause me to love my possessions, to love the things I happen to have, to love notoriety and the position I occupy, perhaps a name that's famous in some way? If I love those things more than God, more than truth, then you'll notice I have allowed Satan the upper hand. I've asked you on that slide to consider a verse like this one. In 1 John 2, verses 15 and following, he said, Love not the world, 
neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. What strong language. What about you and me? Do we love the things of the world more than truth? Do we love the things of the world more than Christ, more than the church, more than the thoughts of heaven? Then if so, may we appreciate the error in that and strive to make some changes at once. But certainly one of the things Satan can do, and consider how easily he can use this tool to render a church to the point where it does nearly nothing. Oh, the doors will be open and they will meet. But their lives are a rather poor reflection of the overall teaching of the Bible. And it's unlikely that any significant works will be done because their heart is somewhere else. May we never allow Satan that kind of approach. May we be aware of that kind of device and make sure to keep it at bay. One last thing on that slide would be that in Matthew 13, 24, the Lord told a parable. And it's a parable that, quite frankly, is one of the strongest, it seems to me, the Lord ever declared. You and I typically call it the parable of the tares of the field. And we remember how it went. A man went out and sowed some seed, but there were tares among the wheat. And so we noticed that the servants recognized They said, what are we to do? Should we go and root up the tares? And he said, no. Let them both grow together. And at the harvest... I'll gather the wheat, but I'll also gather the tares. I'll put the, the wheat in the barn. I'll bundle the tares and burn them. Now, what, what was the Lord's interpretation of this? Well, first of all, remember when He began, He said, this is a parable of the kingdom. May I suggest He's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. There are tares in the church, and there's good wheat in the church. And right now, God's not going to kill those that are tares. He'll let you live. He'll let me, you and I live. We'll survive. But the day is coming when He's going to separate the tares from the wheat. I certainly don't want to be among the tares that day. I certainly do not want to be numbered among them because, again, they're going to be bundled and burned. How frightening. And Satan will love every minute of it. What else would Satan do? Let's close our lesson with number five. Another thing that, again, because of what the Savior said and because of what the New Testament presents to us, isn't it true that Satan could be a mastermind at encouraging compromise? So he knows exactly, the devil knows the Scripture better than you or me. He knows exactly what it says. He knows exactly what it demands. He knows exactly the stance the Lord takes concerning it. And so if He can encourage compromise on your part or mine, oh, the Lord didn't really mean what He said. Interpret it this way. Look at it this way. And so, you and I know over the ages, many, many times this has been done. To change the way that things are viewed, to introduce various things into the church, to move things in a direction to where... We have the say and not the Lord to introduce compromise. 
In 2 John, verse number 9, to that, in that little one-chapter book, John had these words to say, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of God, in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. So you'll notice there is no exception here. If we change or compromise on any point, doesn't it remind us of that text in Galatians 1? Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached, let him be accursed. So you'll notice that congregation, the churches of Galatia, maybe they weren't trying to change a lot. But let's compromise on this point. And you and I know that that, of course, has been the means whereby mechanical instruments of music have been added, any number of other changes concerning the worship have taken place, changes concerning the supposed plan of salvation, and on and on the list goes. But to encourage compromise. And isn't it true? The devil's a master at it. He can take the viewpoint that you and I have and develop in us to see it in a certain way. And suddenly, if some persuasive person then speaks about it, we'll say, well, maybe that makes some sense. I can kind of see it that way. You'll notice that's how, that's how it begins. But you and I realize that the matter in compromise is just a segue to unfaithfulness because you cannot change the gospel. If you do, you pervert it. No wonder in that regard, truth must never be compromised. And the church is the great pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. And so, as that slide closes, these, these observations, what saith the Scripture? In Romans 4, verse 3, as Paul addressed the church in Rome, he, in fact, to them, in the midst of a rather deep discussion in some ways, he nonetheless said, what matters is what saith the Scripture. And there's no reason, no approach to ever compromise it. The Lord said what He said, and He meant it. Later on, you'll notice in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul told the church in Corinth, you must never go beyond what's written. Of course, that hasn't changed today. We too must never go beyond what's written. WWSD, what would Satan do? I'd suggest that Satan would certainly, given his hatred for and his interest in destroying the church, he no doubt would employ these tactics, and I'm sure you can think of some additional ones. But I would hope that at least in light of them, we can say that we're prepared for his attacks in this regard. May we never allow him to undermine in us the authority and respect for the elders, Furthermore, may we always appreciate that the church is a selfless body and may we never allow Him to bring us to a point of selfishness, to where we uphold immorality, to where we are those who just don't care. And finally, may we never compromise the truth. I hope this lesson has been encouraging to each of us. It was simply an attempt to ask the question, what would Satan do? And without doubt... If, the, if Satan's hatred toward the church and his desire to cause it such hurtfulness and harm, he could try these things and many things were connected to them. But we're going to be aware of his devices and let's make sure to not let him succeed. On a personal level today, you and I could ask the question, in light of these things, am, am I an agent of the devil? 
if I'm in fact encouraging these kinds of things we've studied today, then the devil's using me to wreak havoc, to cause harm, and to impact the lives of others in a negative way. May we not allow ourselves to be his operatives. May we not allow ourselves to be those who work as his agents. It might be in this assembly today that there's one or more that has never obeyed the gospel. That is to say, you've reached a point of knowing in your life that there is wrong and there is right, and that the Lord died for you, and that in the current state in which you are, you're lost. You know that's a terrible feeling. Maybe all of us can to some extent remember it. The point is, it doesn't have to persist. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Today, the gospel plan of salvation reads the same now as it did in the record of Acts chapter 2. Won't you believe Jesus to be the Son of God? Won't you repent of your sins, make a, a determined effort to change, to not do those things anymore? Confess the greatness of His name as a Son of God and be immersed in water for the remission of your sins. As you rise from that watery grave, you can proceed then with the intent of a life of newness, Romans 6 verse 4. A life prompted by and directed toward the truth of the Lord. But of course, you may stumble. You may fall. I would suggest, thankfully, God still loves us. And even in a case like that, He pleads with us. Won't you still honor my love? Don't you realize I still want you to go to heaven? I want you to come back to your faithfulness. He's willing to forgive if we will repent and confess. There might be someone in this number who is in that position, who is a wayward child of God, who has conducted him or herself in a way that maybe is consistent with some of these things today. And if so, we now know you were acting as an agent of the devil. But you can be forgiven of that, and the Lord will not even remember what you did. He said, "Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Hebrews chapter 13. Today, if we could be of some help or an assistance, we'd be delighted to do it. We simply extend the Lord's invitation and invite you to come while we stand and sing.